Now, I shared how grateful I am to be here, but my ministry career began at New Life Church in Stonewall, where I spent 10 years. And during that time, uh, the, the senior pastor there, Henry Ozerny, retired. And that was significant because he had uh, served his entire 44 years of ministry at New Life Church in Stonewall. He was the first pastor that they called, and he was the only lead pastor that they had until that Sunday. And so I still remember that last Sunday when he was going to preach his final sermon and how emotionally invested it was and how important it was for him to try to leave the church with these final important words before he retired and then moved on. So that was my experience, and I thought, well, Stony Brook Fellowship had a very similar story where in 1996 this church started, and shortly after, I believe, you have to correct me, or was it 98 that you guys arrived? And all the way until January 2019, in which you were able to preach your final sermon, you thought at the time, here at Stony Brook Fellowship, and this church had never known another pastor as well. And so I just, I just feel like when you know it's going to be your final message, you want to make sure that it's important. You want to make sure that it's focused. You want to make sure it leaves their listeners, their congregation, your family with something that they will keep beyond just your time with them. And I think that was Earl's heart and mind as well. In fact, I know it is because when I thought about this, I said there's probably a copy of this sermon somewhere. And this is how Earl's farewell message began. Lord God, help us, help me especially, to be able to be a pastor one last Sunday, at least with this congregation. Amen. Last Sunday I suggested that uh, I wanted to use my last two weeks, last Sunday and today, uh, I would try to use my messages uh, to be, help my congregation, you, you, my congregation, to transition to a to a new pastor. We don't know who that will be yet, but but that transition that uh, we don't even want to talk about, but will be a good thing. Trust me. So last week I I gave you five practices that if you make them the main thing, then no matter who your pastor will be, you can count on God's blessing. There you go. Now, the mystery solved. I'm the new pastor. And who knows if it's been good or not. You can talk to Earl and get his opinion on that after the service. But what I love is the heart that he brings to that message. I want to give you something that you can carry on that goes far beyond my time and influence here. And so I saw Pastor Henry preach a message with that heart. Many of you were here when Pastor Earl did much the same thing. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul gives his farewell address to the Ephesian church, a church that he served at for over three years. 
He spent a considerable amount of time there in his journeys. He paused there longer than any other stop. Unlike Earl and Carolyn, who were able to not only see you all again, but now have rechurched after a few years here, and Earl has given more sermons, and I'm hoping he will continue to give more sermons in the future. Paul knows he is not going to see these Ephesian friends and brothers and sisters anymore. This is his last chance to talk to them ever. That is unlike Earl and Carolyn, but, but similar to Pastor Earl and Carolyn, he leaves them with principles that will lead to God's blessing. And Jesus did this when he had his farewell discourse in John, and, 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 and Henry and Earl have done it, and Paul is doing it here. When you know it's your last sermon, you want to leave someone uh, something that will last beyond your influence. But you might be asking, okay, wait a minute, how did Paul get to Ephesus in the first place? I will say to you, he actually went there and back again. So if we're talking about Ephesus, then it's time for us to read another chapter of the Apostle, there and back again. With complimentary photo. How did we move from here to there? Well, when we last left Paul, he was in Athens on his own. And then he was, was preaching on Mars Hill and, and using all of these cultural springboards to share the gospel. After he had done that, he sailed down a little bit further down to Corinth. And, and at Corinth, he met up again with Silas and with Timothy. It's also in Corinth that Paul meets and works with Priscilla and Aquila as tent makers, who they would become very important friends and co-laborers with Paul in the early church. He stayed in Corinth for a while, at least one and a half years, and during that time, a lot of Jewish opposition and persecution to the gospel ramps up, probably one of the main reasons why he eventually leaves from Corinth all the way back to Antioch, which was his sending church, and you can see that in Syria and the eastern part of the map. To get there, he takes uh, quite the journey, goes to Sencre and then Ephesus for the first time, down to Caesarea on the coast, and then back up to Antioch by land. This was a quick part of the journey Paul was wanted to get back home. That was the end of his second missionary journey. But his third missionary journey, then, is what we are going to talk about today. He decides to return to Ephesus because when he was on his way home, he just did a, a short stop and, and, and talked about the gospel and planted the church and then went back home. But now he wants to return to Ephesus and he goes there over land. So if you see, starting from Antioch, he'll go back up through a lot of his former journey through southern Galatia and visit the churches there and then over continuing west to Ephesus. And when he gets back to Ephesus, he stays there again at least three years, if not a bit longer. And he has many things that happen to him during this time. He gets there and, and encounters a group of people that had been taught the, the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance, but not the baptism of Jesus. And so he, he corrects this mistake and preaches the gospel, and they are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. And then he goes and continues to preach to both Jews and Gentiles, but his focus continues to shift more and more to the latter as the Jews continue to ramp up their uh, hostility towards the good news and towards Paul. And then the Bible also tells us in Acts that he performs many miracles, or perhaps more accurately, that God performs many different signs and wonders through Paul. But the most well-known story of his years in Ephesus is when Paul causes a riot that's incited by the silversmiths of the town who are losing business because they are not selling as many idols to Artemis. 
So in ancient Ephesus, if you were to go there, there was a temple to Artemis, and it was renowned all across the, the, the Roman world, and people would come from far and wide to visit this temple, and the silversmiths made a killing on all of these idols that they would sell, not just to the local population, but to all those tourists. That was, a, that was the way that they made their money. And so what's incredible is that the gospel was so effective. It was, it was spreading so fast and, and, and making such a discernible change that it hurt the bottom line of those who made the idols. There were fewer and fewer people who were wanting to buy an idol because they were trusting in Jesus and they were moving on from their pagan background and they were influencing their friends to do the same. And this grassroots movement now hurt the bottom line of the tourism industry and those silversmiths. And so they incited a riot and a mob, and they said this is an attack on the goddess herself. But then a a local magistrate calms down that riot, but Paul still needs to leave. And when he leaves Ephesus, you'll see that he's going to continue to retrace the steps of his second journey. He goes all the way up through Macedonia and back down into Greece, all the way to Corinth, and then back up again, all the way to the port city of Troas. It's in Troas where Paul raises Eutychus from the dead. We see that in Acts chapter 20, and we know that the signs and the wonders that the Holy Spirit is accomplishing through Paul is is the same as the signs and wonders that were done during the life of Jesus. From Troas, after that amazing miracle, he then sets sail for Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit has told him he needs to go. He needs to be in Jerusalem. He's compelled to do so. And so he wants to do with all haste. He wants to get there with all haste. And so he sails. Instead of going back down around through land, he sails from Troas and he goes to Assos and then Mytilene. And then he goes to Samos. And finally, close to Ephesus, he stops in a town called Miletus. And when he's at Miletus, Paul decides not to go back into the city of Ephesus, probably because there's still some simmering tensions there. But he has all of these friends uh, in Ephesus and he calls them to him. And he gives them a farewell address. So all the Ephesian elders and the overseers and the pastors of the church are there. And this is what Paul says. These are his final words to those that he has spent those many years with. Picking up in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, you can listen along or follow along in your own Bible. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, You yourselves know how I lived in... uh, among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in the public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that my departure, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. So this is that moment for Paul. He's driven by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He has also been given the discernment of the Spirit that he knows he will not see these people again. So what could he say? What would be so important that would find its way into this farewell address? Well, he wants to leave the Ephesian elders with a task. He wants them to continue to care for the church of God. Uh, Those are his words, to care for the church of God. And why? Well, after all, reminds Paul, Jesus died for the church. It was, to quote from verse 28, obtained with God's own blood. So there is something about not just the individual Christian, but the church and the local church that is precious to Jesus, so precious that he would lay down his own life. And if the church is that important to Jesus, then it must be that important to those who are taking care of it. And in this, we are to follow Paul's example. How did, he, how did he take care of the church? He served the Lord with all humility, finding that in verse 19. Now, I know that this is the Apostle Paul, and he has given this example, and now he is called the overseers of the Ephesian church. And he says, follow this example. But we don't get the luxury of saying that's only for those in leadership. You don't get the luxury this morning to say, okay, I'm going to step back and now this is, uh, this is your job, pastor. You take care of the church. And you also don't have the luxury of saying, well, all those on the leadership team or the spiritual life and care team, we, we vote them in and they get all that headache. They can take care of the church. No, this is a task that is shared by all. And so if the church is so loved by God that he shed his own blood for her and we are called to take care of this precious church, how do we do this? And I think that Paul gives us four different ways in which we can practically take care of the church. The first one, I think, is the foundation. The task, care for the church. The way we need to live life on life. Life on life. But why do I describe it that way? Well, most of the time, we talk about things that are that close together. It's not always the best of circumstances. It's kind of painful. Like if you're talking about bone on bone, there's no cartilage there probably need a knee replacement at that point. It's hard. It's painful. Or perhaps you're just trying to, to, to take in a, on a beautiful summer day a gold eyes game until a train starts coming around and hitting the brakes and all of a sudden you hear metal on metal and then it just has a screeching sound and it creates sparks and friction. But I think I want to describe it this way because it, it gives us just an example of how close together we ought to be as the church. We need to live life on life. No barrier, no, no cartilage, no buffer. We need to get up close and personal with one another. 
I mean, look how up close and personal this time was for Paul and the Ephesians. When he's giving this address, he mentions tears multiple times. He talks about not just teaching people, but going home to home to home to, to teach and train and encourage, yes, but to live and to eat and to laugh and to cry. We can refer to those stories that, that were recorded by Luke in the book of Acts of what happened during his three years there. And we can look at the end in which he finishes this sermon and then he falls down and he weeps and they weep with him and they pray and they are incredibly sorrowful. Why? Because they lived life on life, up close and personal. Because Paul knows, and we know today too, that you can't care for others and you can't care for the church from a distance. You can't care for people at arm's length. You can't properly do what Paul is tasking us to do just to keep to ourselves and make sure that bubble is intact. We need to be able to be close with one another. And there are ways in the church in which we can formalize this into some ministries and programs. We've talked a lot in the fall here about our fellowship groups and how that can be a place where you can do life together and you can meet regularly and pray for one another and and have a Bible study. But it needs to spill past programs. We can look at this example of Paul of going from home to home. Now, I love this. As pastors, we're almost trained this in seminary. We can invite each other. We can invite ourselves over quite easily. It's a skill. Oh, could I, could I come over to your place? You know, that's, maybe that's not quite the way that we need to look at it, but, but turn that around a little bit. How much hosting have you done? How much hosting have you done for your church family in the past number of months? Inviting people into your home does something, something significant, something more than just being able to be at small group or have a conversation on Sunday morning, as important as those things are. Eating together, living together in that way, can be impactful. You could attend baseball games and watch your church team win none of them. You could go for lunch and coffee and help pick up kids and and borrow groceries. You can do all of these things. Just do life together. That's what we're called to. Live life on life. And I think I wanted to put this at the beginning because I don't think any of these other uh, ways in which we carry out our care for our church work if we don't do this first. None of these other things are going to work if people think that we're distant or closed off or proud or or, or hostile or any of those things. Because we need to live life on life. And secondly, we need to be able to speak the truth. Paul never shied away from speaking the whole truth of God. Even it was hard, even when it was difficult, even when it wasn't what people wanted to hear. Now, I'd be really curious to know what some of the background was to this. Uh, Because Paul goes out of his way two different times in verse 20 and verse 26 to defend himself on how he has never shied away from giving the whole counsel of God. Everything that's profitable for you, I've shared with you. So I wonder, maybe he was coming under fire by by some people in the church that saying, well, maybe Paul hasn't told you the whole truth. Uh, Maybe he was anticipating that after he would leave, people would come in. And, and try to drag his reputation through the mud. But whatever the case is, it was vitally important for Paul to say to the Ephesians, remember how I gave you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so if we are to care for the church, we have to follow this example and be willing to speak the truth to one another in a way that cares for the other person. This can look a few different ways. For example, I think this should look like biblical preaching. So if we rewind more than 
four years ago, and I was looking into whether coming here to pastor would be a good fit for me and my family, I was really encouraged because one of the core values of Stony Brook Fellowship is to have biblical preaching. That's been important to me. That's the way that I've been trained in seminary. And so this is one thing that I want to be accountable to you. I, I, I desire and I, and I try my hardest to preach biblically week in and week out. Some days better than others. And again, you can keep that part to yourself if you have an opinion there. But this is an important value. And I hope at the end of my time here, however long it may be, I can stand up and like Paul say in full confidence, I've never shied away from giving you the whole counsel of God. Because biblical preaching isn't just preaching from the Bible. I love, this is a paraphrase, Francis Chan. He says, you can preach from the Bible every Sunday and not be a biblical preacher because of what you omit, because of what you don't talk about. Those difficult passages that you skirt around or gloss over. And so I think we've gotten uh, down to the nitty-gritty here at Stony Brook. We have, we have had a sermon series that tackled your burning questions and some of those really hard-to-understand controversial things. You, you stuck with me through a whole fall of going through the book of Revelation, which isn't what we would sign up for as pastors as the easiest Bible book to preach. And yet we did this together. And so let's carry this on, not shying away from the hard things, but talking about them all. But of course, this is more than just what I do as a pastor for you. If we think about life on life, it has to be more personal. And so speaking the truth in the life of our church really comes down to holding each other accountable, being willing to speak the truth to one another, and being able to receive the truth from each other. And once again, we can try to grease the wheels for this through ministries and programs. Now we're talking about discipleship groups three or four men, three or four women who share things in that context they may not share anywhere else. And you can really speak into each other's life and say, you should pursue this. You need to avoid doing that. This may be harmful for you if you continue down this path. But are you willing in your friendships? So I'm going to pick on, I'm going to pick on Taylor a little bit because you, you shared about how important your friends are. You said they're godly friends. And I really hope that part of what these godly friends are doing for you is telling you when you're being silly or telling you when you're not pursuing the things that are, God, that are godly or life-giving to you. That is such a crucial way in which true friends are profitable in our lives, not just saying what we want to hear, but what we need to hear in each and every instance. And as a pastor of, of over 14 years, I can say that during my ministry time, I have seen examples of this happen and not happen. So I've seen examples of somebody who's, who's a, a Christian in our youth group and they're, and they're dating someone who's not a believer. And then we'll, and then we'll be, be void of this. They don't have any friends in their life that are willing to say, hey, Paul is very clear now about not choosing to be unequally yoked. You need to, have to be on the same spiritual wavelength with someone that you're going to be intimate with. That, that's a biblical command. Like, you're not doing this. And I would see that no friends were willing to have that hard conversation. Oh, they just look so cute together. He's so nice to her. That's just not good enough. That is, that is literally shying away from the profitable counsel of God. And I've seen it the other way around. I've seen it where there have been uh, some people in the church that are, that are actively pursuing stepping away from their marriage. And they're, and they're putting themselves in harm's way, but it's not too late. And a group of men have gone there and they've confronted somebody and said, you ought not to do this. This is a covenant. This is a promise. This is what, this is what it means to be a man of God. And everywhere in between. But how are we as a church? Are we willing in our, in our friendships, living life on life, are we able to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? 
Well, in a similar fashion, the third way that we care for the church of God is to watch each other's backs. Paul warned that after he would leave, false teachers would arise, and he calls them wolves. I'm going to reread for you verse 29 and 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after. Therefore, be alert. So there is going to be this problem. And I'm sure Paul has already seen aspects of this in some of his other churches that he's planted over his journeys. And he says, when I leave, there's going to be people from the outside that, that would see a church that's healthy and pursuing the gospel in this way. And they want to divert you and they want to derail you from the path that you're on. Don't let them do that. But it's not going to be limited just to those from the outside. There are going to be some of you maybe even some of those who are listening to Paul and this farewell address, some of them in leadership that would, that would see this leadership void that was left by someone as, as important and charismatic as, as Paul and try to step into that to gain uh, influence and power and authority. And, and really, Paul says, at the end, whether they come from the outside or from in, they want their own gain. They want their own disciples to come after them. Their goal will not be to care for the church in humility, but for their own selfish gain. So, of course, we are warned to be alert. This is one of the misgivings I have as a modern Western world thinker. When I hear this warning, be alert, I individualize it. And you're probably a lot like me. I say, I need to be on alert. I need to make sure that, that I'm discerning what I'm hearing and what I'm learning, what I'm listening to. I need to be aware of who is influencing me. And that's all true. But this was not an individual message by Paul. He is saying to the elders, and he is saying to us as a church, we need to all be alert. And the way that I've chosen to describe that is we need to watch each other's back. And this has been an important part of combat for a long time. Right? So if you were sword fighting in medieval times and you had your helmet on, you could see this much in front of you. And you would not be aware of danger lurking unseen behind you. You needed someone to watch your back. And you fast forward all the way today with our modern jets and aerial warfare and and we have a new saying, you got to watch my six. you got to watch my back. I need a wingman to alert me to danger that I cannot see myself. This is what we need to do for one another, not just to discern in our own lives, that's a good start, but together, corporately, test and discern what is being taught, how we are being influenced, and how we are striving after the good news of Jesus. We need to watch each other's backs. And I love it because Jesus gives us a good example of how we can be alert and discerning in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. Jesus, also aware of what will happen when he's gone, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Sound familiar? You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And this is why we need to live life on life. Because when, when, when someone is... is so I, I preach to you every week, and I hope that I can point you to, to biblical ideas. And not my ideas, but the ideas of God as he's revealed them to be. But my hope is that you will listen, not because I'm up on stage or holding a Bible, because you know my life, and you've seen me with my wife, and you've seen me with my kids, and you've seen me with my friends, and we've shared meals. You have to live life on life to know what the fruit of someone's life is. 
And so there is, I think, an interesting and inherent danger in having access to so many teachers on, on our phones and online and everything on, on TV that we just don't know what their life is like. We don't know what the fruit is there. That robs us with a little bit of this discernment. But together, we can be vigilant and be alert and ensure that we are not led astray. And what I love, this is just for fun, what I love is that when you go to Revelation chapter 2, which is, is written a fair bit after, uh, Paul gives this farewell address. We see that the Ephesian church listened, and then they did this thing. This is what we see in, in Revelation 2, 1 to 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Doesn't that just bring you back? Should we go back to Revelation again? So much fun. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. They listened to Paul. They put this into practice. They watched each other's backs. Can we do the same thing? Well, the final way that I believe Paul describes how we can care for the church of God is to be generous people, which puts us in opposition to the false teachers. Paul has revealed that one of the ways we know someone is, is not a true teacher is, is their motives will be false. They're doing it for themselves. They want their own disciples. But now if we are generous people, we are going to do it very differently. And Paul goes to, again, great lengths to say that I was different from false teachers. He says in verse 33 that he did not ever covet anybody's riches. In fact, he goes on to explain that he worked with his own hands to pay his way, to pay his own keep. He did this not, not just to be able to pay his own way, but also that he could take the next step and be generous in giving to other people who had more need than him. He didn't just not require charity. He worked hard to generously give to others in need. He calls us all to follow that example. And to pound this point home, Paul quotes Jesus. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The Lord Jesus himself said this. And then we'll go to the gospel of, actually, we have no recording of Jesus saying this anywhere, which is quite fascinating. Paul didn't make it up, but he obviously had access to, to an experience or to a document that we don't have access to anymore. But Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Something that I seem to remember quoted at me every Christmas as a child. But it goes a little farther than that. Again, it bleeds into this life on life that we're trying to do as a church. We want to work hard, not just to have much, but to be able to give much to those who are in need. And while we may not have that direct passage quoted that um, Paul refers to, we do have a teaching in Matthew 25 where Jesus tells us to look after the least of these, picking up in verse 37. The righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus says, I care for the church, and I died for the church. I care for the least of, the least of these, I died for them, and I'm calling you to care for those who have the greatest need. Are we living in this way? I see lots of positive signs of this in our church. Uh, again, in Life on Life and in relationships, I love how we've done this for the refugee families. Last week, we had them visit with us again here on Sunday. 
And through a lot of your generosity, we've been able to help, along with some other churches, to bring two families here to Canada, help get them established. We have a third family that will eventually be on their way. And that's the kind of thing we need to do to work hard, to then care for those brothers and sisters, even across the world that we know have great needs. Now, my wife Karen's not here today, and so I'm going to pick on her a little bit. She's at home with some sick kids. Um, and, and so I'm going I'm to call her out a little bit. But my, one thing I love about my wife is she's very good at seeing and then filling the needs around her, emotional, spiritual, physical needs. And, 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 and I, I'm not good at that. I can be very task-oriented. I can be very straightforward. Sometimes I feel like i got blinders on in being too busy. And so often Karen will say, well, you should text so-and-so. Or maybe you should uh, invite so-and-so out for coffee. Or here's some, we're going to make meals for this person. Why don't we drop it off? Or we're not using this anymore. Instead of selling it, let's just pass it on to someone who needs it more. And, and so if you receive something from me, know this. I, when I give it to you, I mean it with all of my heart. But it probably came from Karen's brain. <laughs> so I mean it. I'm all for it. But she is the one in my life and in our pastoral team who often recognizes this need. And I love it. And I'm trying to grow in that area, but I encourage you too. We need to be able to first to see the needs around us and then be creative in helping fill them. And again, can't do that from a distance. We have to be life on life. So what is our result? What is the result of caring for the church? Well, I think Paul also refers to this in verse 32. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We have this eternal inheritance. At the end of of that clip we played from Pastor Earl's sermon, he says, if you live this way, I believe that no matter what lunatic comes to be your pastor, you will receive God's blessing. Paul is saying much the same thing. Care for the church in this way, and you will receive this eternal inheritance. Paul never saw the Ephesian church again, but he certainly did write them at least one letter. And he talks about the importance of this inheritance again in Ephesians 1, picking up in verse 11. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So yeah, we we get this possession or this inheritance, but again, it's given to us. We don't earn it. It's given to us. It's, It's promised. It's sealed by the Holy Spirit. It is something that we look forward to. And we can live in light of that inheritance when we care for the church in the proper way. So we're going to invite the music team to come forward. We're going to have an, an opportunity in just a moment to take communion. But we need to remember why this is important. Why do we care for the church? Why do we bother getting close and uncomfortable with people? Why are we willing to say hard things that are true and receive those things? Why do we put the energy into looking out for others, not just ourselves? Why would we have to be generous with all those many things that we have worked for? Why do we care for the church? Because it was obtained by the blood of Jesus Christ. It was so valuable and precious and important to him that he shed his own blood. And that's what we're celebrating here this morning 
in communion. That's why we care for it as well. That's why we live in this way. If you're here this morning and you have yet to put yourself in entrusting Jesus for this eternal inheritance, this morning is a wonderful time to say yes to that, to receive this gift of grace and inheritance that is for you. It's a blessing worthy of living for. Let's pray together. God, you are a good God, and of the many gifts you have given us that we are thankful for, the gift of eternal inheritance in your son Jesus is the one that we just can't ever hope to even conceive of repaying. It's the one we are most thankful for, the most grateful for. God, I pray that we as a, as a church would live this out and care for a church that you cared enough to shed your own blood for. May we remember this well, not just through communion, but in living in this way. We pray this in your name. Amen.